Well, um, let me tell you a little Apostles' Creed story, just as a little vignette. When I uh, went to be the senior pastor at Highland Park Press in Dallas back in 2000, um, there was a uh, Austin Seminary had a, well, no, probably about four years after I was there, Austin Seminary in Austin called a new president. And I knew him personally because he was in the class ahead of me at Union Theological Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. And looking back at that time, uh, he was probably the only real liberal in the whole seminary. And he was always kicking against the goads and always, you know, he was just a, you know. Anyway, so uh, he and I were not good friends, but we knew each other. So this pastor in Dallas, Highland Park President cut off all their money to Austin Seminary, as did this church pretty much. And um, there was a pastor in Dallas who went to Highland Park Press and he graduated from that seminary and he wanted Highland Park's coffers to open up again. So he, he planned a lunch meeting between me and the new president. And uh, it was a free lunch. So, <laughs> so I said, hey, Ted, I haven't seen you in decades. And his first words to me were, Ron, you need to know, I now believe the Apostles' Creed. Thought, wow. And I thought, great, this could be a new day. The life of that seminary and my church's relationship with blah, blah, blah. So we're eating lunch and we're kind of talking about old times. And then suddenly I thought, wait a minute. I was just beginning to understand the whole idea of postmodernism and deconstruction of language, personified classically by a former president who leaned into the camera and said, well, it depends on what is, is. He'll remain nameless. So I said, hey, Ted, can we talk about the Apostles' Creed? Well, sure. So, I mean, we didn't make it through the first clause when it was obvious that he didn't believe any of it. And I, I called him on it, and he said, well, Ron, that's what you think it means. But this is what I think. And I said, no, 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 no. This is not what I think it means. This is, uh, and he said, who, who alive was there? Who, who knows what the original authors meant? And I said, well, nobody, and we don't, except here's what the church with a capital C has said what we think they have meant for 1,600 years. This isn't your creed, it's not my creed. You can't fool with it and just change it to, you know, say what you think it means. So needless to say, they didn't get a penny from Helen Parker. So, but you know, I got the lunch. The, the guy that set it up, he was with us at the beginning. He paid it for it. He left. So, and so I got three lobsters to go. Too. Uh, but, you know, I told that story a couple of weeks ago about the seminary student who said, what about if you don't believe a certain part of the creed? And this Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox priest said, you say it anyway. Um, it's not your creed. You can't. And if you don't believe it, then you don't join that community of faith. This is what the church says this community believes. And that can sound a little hard-hearted, 
And I also followed that by saying, you know, if you're here this morning, you don't believe certain parts of the creed. It's okay. Keep saying it. Allow us to walk with you. And I gave you an example of a couple of folks who, over the years, you know, they evolved into firmly believing it. So that's, you know, faith's a gift. It's not something you and I can drum up. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And uh, sometimes he lifts the veil in certain person's eyes early on in life, some on their deathbed. And, and for most of us, we don't believe everything all at once. We, we grow, we mature in our faith, and that's the Holy Spirit at work, uh, helping us to understand more faithfully uh, the Christian faith. Um, today we're going to tackle the shortest but the most controversial phrase in the creed. We talked two weeks ago, or last Sunday, about I, you know, who are you? Uh, you'll never know who you are until you understand who God is. And creeds enable us to understand who God is better. They're kind of lenses through which we read Scripture. And the Apostles' Creed is the most widely accepted, shortest, most concise creed um, about the essentials of the Christian faith. And I pointed out last week, I think, that uh, notice it doesn't say anything about the teachings of Jesus. It's only about who God is and then some of the benefits of that at the end of the creed for you and me. And I point that out because we probably all have known people who have come to us and said, well, you know, I go to church, I'm a Christian, but I don't really believe Jesus is God. But I try to live by his teachings. That's what's really important is the teachings of Christ. Well, I always say, what teachings? They usually say the Sermon on the Mount. And so I say, you live by that. Huh. I say, have you ever read it? Uh, and if you haven't read the Sermon on the Mount, read it and try to live by it. Good luck. I firmly believe that the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, the basic purpose of those is to drive you and me into despair to the point where we go, I can't do this. I need a Savior. And once you get, get to that point, it's like, bingo, the light goes on. But who can save? The Apostles' Creed is adamant about who God is, and that's the primary reason he came in Jesus Christ as a rescue mission to save us. And we talked about belief last week, and many Christians sadly confuse belief with mere intellectual assent. And I pointed out to you James 2.19, where James is, is kind of a, a calling early Jewish Christians on the carpet when they say, I believe the Shema, the O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's kind of the Jewish Apostles' Creed. And James says, big deal. You believe God is one? Even the demons believe. Have you ever thought about that? The demons. Satan's minions are the most theologically orthodox beings in the universe. They don't sit around debating the virgin birth or the res bodily resurrection. They're eyewitnesses to all that stuff. So what's the difference then between you and me and a demon? Um, I gave that story about Charles Blondine that the crowd intellectually assented that he could put a man on his back and take him across Niagara Falls in a tight wire. But that's a whole lot different than actually getting on the 
shoulders of Charles Blondine and walking across and risking your life. So believe from a biblical standpoint is totally casting yourself, your life, totally into the arms of Christ, saying, I have no other hope. I believe, I cling to you, I will walk with you, I give you my life, even if you don't understand everything. And I talked about St. Augustine says, you know, you, you will never understand until you believe. It's kind of like, you know, if you wait till it's time to have a child or buy a house, you'll never have a child, never buy a house. Uh, you've got to do it, and then the Holy Spirit begins to open our eyes more and more into what we've gotten into. Another illustration of that is, um, I remember when I came to Christ, I was 10 years old at Billy Graham Crusade, and um, I felt like that was 100% my choice. I mean, I looked at the data, I heard Billy Graham, I made a decision, and I felt like that's 100% of my doing. And it's like I walked, I stepped onto the other side of the cross, then looked back and I was like, whoa, I could see how God was weaving events and people in and out of my life and putting me through certain things. And all of that was his way of drawing me to himself. Yes, you have to make a choice. But Augustine would say you cannot choose for God until um, uh, the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart. That's why um, faith always follows justification. Justification is when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you, justifies you, then you can believe. And that's basically what the entire scriptures teach as well. So your salvation is 100% in the hands of God, not 98%, 100%. And that's why in the Reformed part of the church, we talk a lot about the assurance of salvation. And uh, Jonathan Edwards, another great Reformed theologian, said, you know, if you really believe what the Bible teaches, you sleep better at night. If you think you can lose your salvation, and you can, if it's in your hands, do you really want your salvation in your hand? I know Christians say, I, I want to make that choice. I want to, down deep inside, I do too. I want to stand before God like the prodigal son and say, hey, Dad, I'm home, and here's a list of reasons why you ought to take me back. And God never looks at my list. We have no leg to stand on. And if my salvation's in my hands, I, I played football through high school and college, and I fumbled more than once. And the thing that's most important in my life, my salvation, I don't want it in my hands. I want it in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ who never fumbles, never. So you sleep better at night if you really believe that. So the Apostles' Creed really is not about you and me. It's not about the teachings of Jesus. It's about who God is from a Trinitarian standpoint. We talked last week about how this originally was a baptismal creed. That's why it begins with I rather than we, because there comes a point when you got to stand on your own two feet and make your decision and say, here's where I stand, even if I have to stand alone. This is the commitment I am making. But the creed is, is also was battling against the Arian heresy of the first century, which is basically uh, first century Unitarianism. Uh, some of you are familiar with the Unitarian Church. They believe God is just 
One, one, they think the Trinity is antithetical to who God is. Same with Muslims and, and Jews. Muslims think we worship three gods. We don't. But we, re, we worship a God who's revealed himself as a triune community of faith. And this is a classic drawing to help us understand the Trinity. I don't know when it was first devised, but I like it. This is the Greek word, uh, letter theta, which means God, but theos. So here's God in the center, theos. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you'll see the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. So that's just one. I need visual, visual things to help me understand the faith, and I hope that's helpful uh, to you. So let's start unpacking the first phrase of the Apostles' Creed. Um, I don't know if there's any... I had sheets out here with the creed on them. Yeah, here they are. If you don't have it memorized and you would like one of these, Paul, can I get you to hand those out to people? So each... The, the creed is really divide, uh, divided into three main sections, one about the Father, which is the shortest, the Son, which is the most lengthy, and then the Holy Spirit, at the, uh, that's the last phrase, and along with the Holy Spirit are all these things that benefits that come to you and me by knowing who God is and by having a personal relationship with this God, a, a wholehearted commitment to him. And um, first thing I want to say about it, I, I believe in God the Father Almighty. This is, this is radical in first century Palestine to call God Father. The Jews would never call God Father. Um, God to the average Jew was more of a transcendent being way out there, somewhat unapproachable except by a few people like Moses and David, but the average Jew, God was way out there, somebody to be appeased by sacrifices. Jesus comes along. Not only does he start calling God Father, but he uses an Aramaic word that was even more radical, and even scandalous. Anybody know what that word is? Paul, you can't answer because you know. I know. Abba. That's an Aramaic word, best translated in English along the lines of daddy. Daddy. And so you get, the first thing we learn about God in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, this intimate, personal, familial term. Um, and as you begin to understand this whole idea of Father and Jesus, Abba, it actually creates a picture of, the, here's a God who's not just transcendent. We're going to talk about transcendence and imminence in just a minute. Transcendent, way far away, imminent, close. Uh, God is both, uh, both and. But this idea that God is not just a supreme being. He is your father and my father. Now, that's problematic for some people. If you've had a bad father 
or a, a father that deserted you or and they're Christians having to work through that whole idea. Let me just say this, you know, don't ever extrapolate human categories onto God. We have a tendency to do that. It's called anthropomorphisms. And we tend to think that God, when the Bible says he's jealous, well, we know what we're like when we're jealous. We're angry and self-centered and, you know, wanting to kill some. God is, is sinless. He, there's nothing negative in his jealousy. Um, and the same with fatherhood. God is the model of what a father should be. And he's one that will never mistreat you or let you down. Um, so this idea of father really separates the Christian faith apart from the Judaic faith and the Muslim faith. They would never call God father. Uh, it's totally a, a New Testament concept that introduced by by Jesus. And let's talk a little more about uh, this word father. It brings home the imminence of God, that God is close. He's not just way out there. And we'll contrast, I'm going to get into transcendence in a little bit, but notice the first thing in the creed is the imminence of God, that he's close. And he's like our father. He is our father, spiritual father. And all good things about fatherhood are embodied by God in terms of his relationship with you and me. Um, one of the things that father implies, too, is that he is a procreator. Uh, you know, your father gave, helped give birth to you, you know, his seed. Well, it's the same with God. God is our spiritual father. Uh, Again, I talked last week about, you know, you're, as a human being, as you look at your life, there's only two options as to who you are. You're either a, a, a random conglomeration of electromagnetic particles that happen to collide over time and, and in a random way, and you just popped into being uh, through evolution or whatever. That's one option. The other option is somebody created you. Uh, as a scientist, all the evidence points to the latter. And even in the secular scientific world, um, all the evidence is pointing to the reality of a creator as well. There are astrophysicists becoming deists left and right. They may not become Christians, but they're, they look at the vastness of the universe and the complexity and the fine tuning of it. And they say, and the computer models which show that you can run time out as long as you want. You can't even come up with the evolution of a single cell, let alone billions of species of animals and plants and everything else. So um, this God is a procreator. In fact, uh, as Ephesians 1.4, which is one of my favorite verses, tells us, it says, this God, this Father God, thought of you, you, before the foundation of the world. Before, I like to say, before he ever spun the first atom off his fingertips. You were already on his mind. He knew your name. And he chose you before the foundation of the world to be his. So uh, that ought to make us pretty confident about uh, our place in the world. And if you really are, if I'm really made in the image of God, that is the sole reason for my self-esteem my feeling of self-worth, 
has nothing what to do with my race, ethnicity, social status, what I have or don't have, what I can do or what I can't do, what I've achieved or what I've failed to achieve. That's how we tend to define somebody, their self-worth. Or, or we probably look at ourselves, we define ourselves that way. Huh. Only one thing, and it makes everyone equal. You're made in the image of God. That means you are deserving of respect and love, care and protection from womb to tomb. We should, every day I pray, Lord, help me to see every person I meet today through the lens of the cross and to love them as you would have me love them in Christ Jesus. Don't always do it, but I pray it and I try. Um, and eco, our denomination, that's why in our essential tenets, um, we're a pro-life denomination. We believe that every life is equally valid uh, at every stage of life because made in the image of God. Good fathers are providers, protectors, etc. That's all implied in this whole image of God the Father. But then the next word is the most controversial word in the entire creed. You know, most people stumble in the creed over uh, usually the phrase, we're going to get to the phrase, he descended into hell. And that's been controversial in Christians of battle. What does that mean? Should it even be in there? Uh, some of you remember the, the good old Maroon hymn book? I grew up with this hymn book. And uh, if you turn to the, uh, the front of the book, it has the Apostles' Creed in here. And uh, you can't see this. It's too far away. But you see that thing I've circled down there, there's a, an asterisk. It says, he descended into hell. There's an asterisk. And then down here it says, some churches omit this. Now, I've never been a part of a church that did. Um, but I remember one day thinking, you know, I could solve all the theological controversy in the church by just putting an asterisk after every phrase of the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Some churches omit this. Um, <laughs> being facetious there. But uh, Almighty is the most controversial thing in the creed. I mean, think about it. If God really is Almighty, that means he can do anything. Then what's a virgin birth? What's a bodily resurrection? What's raising Lazarus from the dead? What's turning water into wine? If he's Almighty. And one of the things to be a good theologian, you and I really need to come to grips with is what does... A, a synonym for Almighty is God is sovereign. I'll run into Christians who will say, you know, God is sovereign over most of the world. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That's an oxymoron. You, you can't be sort of sovereign. You're either totally sovereign or you're not. There's, there's no middle ground. And that's one of the hardest things for some people to, to grasp. But once you do, everything else theologically begins to fall into place. God the Father Almighty. Another synonym would be omnipotent. He has all power to do whatever he thinks best. Um, any true idea about God must incorporate this idea of sovereignty. Not total sovereignty. Again, that would be an oxymoron. Sovereignty stands by itself. It means God 
has complete dominion over anything, anyone, time, space, etc. Imagine a God that is not sovereign. Well, I mean, again, you can't have a God that's not sovereign. Um, he wouldn't be God. Uh, what kind of a God has one hand tied behind his back? Um, how could that being be God? So Reformed theology is always emphasized and agreed to err when you find something controversial. The best thing to do is to err on the side of two things. Err on the side of grace and to err on the side of the sovereignty of God. I find that most helpful. In There's some things you and I are not going to figure out. There is great mystery in the faith. I, I remember in seminary I was taking Reformed theology with the man who became my mentor, Dr. John Leith. He was a great Reformed theologian. We're going through John Calvin's magnus opus, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And I can't remember what the chapters were, but one chapter is on the free will of human beings. The next chapter was on uh, the sovereignty of God. And I remember raising my hand and saying, Dr. Leith, you know, it seems like we have total free will. And then this next chapter that we don't. And he goes, yes. <laughs> and then he drew something on the board that helped me understand. He said, you know, the Christian faith, Calvin's concept of the Christian faith is, okay, here, this is a, a hub of a wheel. And here's Jesus Christ in the center. He is the center of what we believe as Christians, theologically and everything else. And then you've got every other part of theology, you know, these are like the spokes of the wheel. So you have, you know, uh, eschatology, you have the doctrine of salvation, fill in whatever doctrines you want. They, what's missing from this wheel? Yeah, no rim. And Lisa Calvin never puts a rim on And the Bible never puts a rim on it. This is the mystery how this all works together. So and guess what? If you and I could figure it all out, God would be pretty small. Uh, take solace in the fact that you can't understand everything about God instead of being worried about it. If you and I could figure out God completely, we'd be God, which would mean there is no God. Um, so leave room for mystery, but also at the same time, you and I, to be good theologians, we need to cultivate a teachable spirit. Never say, I've arrived, I got it. We should always be open to if somebody can come along and show us a better way to look at scripture. And I remember coming out of seminary, I came right to this church. One of my last classes was uh, Book of Romans with Paul Ochtemeyer, who Internationally, they said, Paul owns the book of Romans. And so, I mean, we spent six weeks delving into the depths of Rome. I came out, I know Romans. My first year here, we had a, a week of spiritual renewal with Dr. Dick Halverson, who was, that time, he's dead now, pastor of the Fourth Presbyterian Church in my hometown, Bethesda, Maryland. And he was chaplain to the Senate. And Dick was a great guy. And he came down here. And he gave lectures, I don't remember on what. But then they had every morning a gathering for men. And Dick was going to go 
take us through parts of Romans. <laughs> oh, oh, man. I, maybe I can teach Dr. Halverson something. I came out of that week going, where did he find How did I not see? I mean, don't ever think you've got it all figured out. And uh, teachable spirit, try to maintain that. This is one of my favorite illustrations of what the sovereignty of God means. And it's in our sanctuary. This morning, if you're going to be in the sanctuary, look up at the chancel. This is my attempt at drawing that. If you look, the chancel has an arch up there, and there's a keystone up there. You know, the keystone is what holds the arch together. You pull the keystone out, and, and in the keystone is what? A crown. I think it even has a light shining on it. Crown. That symbolizes the sovereignty of God over everything. And, you know, this cross wasn't supposed to be hanging there originally. I've seen, I've seen the architectural drawings. and uh, It was originally um, the ascension window was going to be moved to one of the side things that doesn't have a stained glass window. And they were going to have a, a purple uh, cloth hanging down where the woodwork is around the ascension window. And this Celtic cross is called the St. John's Celtic cross. The original standing on the island of Iona in Scotland, about nine feet tall. It's been there since the seventh century. And that was going to hang on that back wall. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, that's really where it should be. And because, uh, you know, you can sit in that sanctuary and not even see this cross sometimes. And, and oh, well, there's a cross up there. I didn't notice that before. You're not going to miss it if it's contrasted against that purple velvet background. So I thought, oh, I wonder why this didn't happen. Well, I've heard the story told that Dr. Mose, he was right at the end of his career, and they, were, they decided, the session decided they were going to redo the chancel. They're going to move the choir up into the loft. It used to be back behind them. And they were going to put a side pulpit instead of it. They had a central pulpit. I think his pulpit used to be in here. I don't know where it is now. And... Um, and that cross is going to be there. And they unveiled the thing. They had a congregational meeting, and Dr. Mose was showing a picture of this. And a certain elder got up out of the congregation, got up there, and this is what I was told, shoved Dr. Mose, leaned down and said, that window will move over my dead body. <laughs> Hospital for sinners, folks. Notice where the window is. <laughs> So anyway, but the point of this is we tend to focus on the cross, and, you know, we should. But here's a great illustration of the sovereignty of God. If God is not sovereign, then the crucifixion is just the martyrdom of a, a guy who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, got in the vortex of Roman injustice and Jewish jealousy, and he's a martyr. And nothing happened on the cross if God's not sovereign. Notice if you took the sovereignty of God out of here, the keystone, what would happen to the cross? It would fall. So the cross is only efficacious, only does what it's supposed to do because God is sovereign. So Jesus, remember the part in Scripture where it says he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He didn't go to Jerusalem thinking, well, maybe I can dodge the bullet here. 
he knew. He, he was not a victim. He was a volunteer. And he was a volunteer out of love. He was willing to die. That's how much he loves you and me. So we even see some of the fatherhood of God embodied in Jesus. That father's love overflows into Christ and enables Christ to go to the cross to save you and me. But we're only saved because God is sovereign. But you know, this raises some problematic issues in theology. And one of those is uh, defined by theological, um, well, I'll put it this way. A lot of people struggle that if God is sovereign, then why is there evil? Could God wipe out Satan? If he's sovereign, he could. Then why doesn't he? And some people say, well, you know, either God's all powerful, he's either sovereign, and not loving. Because if he was all powerful, he could change all the bad stuff. He would. But he must be not loving. Or if God's all love, because there's evil, he must not be all powerful. So we have that conundrum going there, and a lot of people stumble over that. Let me show you what I found to be the way, not around that, but through that. Now, first, I just got to say to you, this is the reason why I said to the Thursday morning men's Bible study, you know, you're at the mercy of all the junk that's flying around that world unless you are grounding yourself every day in the Word of God. I, I really, this sounds awful, but it's sort of like saying, you better eat three meals a day or you will die. If you're not reading through Scripture, the whole Bible every year, you're... you're like going out into battle with no armor on. Well, that's the read to the Bible? It take about 20 to 25 minutes a day. There are Google Bible reading calendars. They're all over the place. It'll tell you what to read. You can even buy a, and don't you have a, a the one year Bible? And it just gives you Old and New Testament, I think Psalms, to read every day. 20 minutes, 25 minutes if you're a slow reader. And I've learned more through that. I'm on my 46th time straight through than my seminary and all that kind of stuff. And I find new stuff all the time. How did I miss that? But here's the one thing I've really learned that helps with that whole idea of, you know, if God's either must be all-powerful but not loving or all-loving and not powerful. Um, the conundrum it's not solved, but I can walk through it through the lens of the cross. Until you and I start looking at all of life through the lens of the cross, we're going to get blown out of the water. Think about it. The cross, Jesus' crucifixion, is the most unjust, unfair, horrific, you can pile on the adjectives thing that ever happened in the history of humankind. Could Christ have walked away from the cross? Yeah. He said, I could call down 12, 12 legions of angels, not go through this. Um, what does the cross tell us about God and evil? The Bible does not tell us where evil comes from, except that it doesn't come from God. And the Bible says there's a Satan 
and it tells us he was a fallen angel, it does not tell us why God doesn't just obliterate Satan. We get some hints in the book of Job, which is the oldest book in Scripture, so that's, I take that as God saying, okay, if you're going to be a biblical Christian, we begin with Job, and the front door of the faith is there's evil, there's Satan, and, but he's on a leash, and I will actually use Satan in the life of the most righteous man on earth to make a point, and that's that my love for you is not based on your righteousness. You're not going to be spared. You know, prosperity theology is a crock. Because um, anybody, if anybody should uh, believe in prosperity theology, it would be Job before this happened because everything was going his way, and that's what Satan says. The only reason he loves you, God, is because you've created a nice life for him. So God says, let me make a point. Now, I've, I kind of get angry at God, right? Yeah, pick on somebody your own size, God. You know, why put Job through this? But I'm glad he did, because it reminds us that being a wholehearted, committed Christian doesn't spare you from anything. And Job goes through literally hell. His wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? Um, his friends are no help. And Job kind of gets angry at God which gives you and me permission to do likewise. And then God kind of takes him out to the woodshed and says, where were you, Job, when I made all of this and designed all this? And it says Job finally repents and says, hey, I'm going to follow you because of who you are, not because of the goodies on the end of the stick. One time, I've said it numerous times from the pulpit, if Christ appeared to you today and said, now, I'm just, this is to make a point, but if he appeared to you and said, hey, Ron, there's no heaven, and there's no hell. Nothing on the other side. Come follow me. What would you do? What would you do? That's a tough question to deal with. Are you, are you going to follow Christ to get the goodies, get the carrot and the end of the stick? Let me help you on this. You enlist in the army. You're a private, and you're walking along, and a general pulls up and says, Private, dig three holes right there. Now, now, if you said, well, you give me about eight reasons why I should do that. What's going to happen to you? That private would do it. Why? Why? Because what? He's ordered. Yeah, but what gives him the right to order? General stars. The private obeys and does what the general says because that's the way it is. You and I, if Christ appeared to you and said there's nothing on the other side, no heaven or hell, come follow me, we should follow Christ for who he is, his authority, his sovereignty, as king of kings and lord of lords, not because we can figure it out or that we get a reward for it. Until you've reached that point, you probably need to keep pushing on uh, in the Christian faith. Now, it's easy to say that, but, you know, I want the reward. I like the idea of eternal life. And the good news is we do get that. But that shouldn't be the primary reason why we follow Christ. It should be for who he is. And we're back again that the creed focuses in on who God is. Not the goodies, although we see some of those at the end. But the more you know who God really is, the more you are likely to follow him faithfully.
to a point, because we're all still sinners, and we all still, every time we sin, we go, nope, I'm going to do what I want. Keep short accounts with God. The next word is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker, synonym, creator. So we, and we're told he's made heaven and earth. And earth is earth. Heaven's everything else that God made that's not the earth. I think that's what the writers of the creed were saying. So everything that exists, exists because God made it. And, uh, you know, the, the Hubble telescope really confirmed the uh, Big Bang Theory. Uh, it, it showed by their calculations of observing the radiation background in the universe that there actually was a time when there was no matter. Now, this is far beyond what I can comprehend. And that in a single split second, matter appeared. The billions of galaxies and trillions of planets and stars. What? Right there, it gives you an idea how big this God is. Um, and secular, I mean, these are secular astrophysicists who are saying this. St. Augustine was saying this back in the fourth century. Creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Otherwise, matter becomes eternal and matter becomes God. So theologically, you can't have anything that's eternal other than God himself. And science is backing all this up, left and right. Uh, don't ever be afraid of science. It's follow the evidence where it goes. It'll take you right into the arms of Christ. And what this tells us, you've heard me say this before, God is a wild materialist. <laughs> when people say to me, Ron, we've got to get materialism out of Christmas. I go, no, no, that's the whole point of Christmas. Not consumeristic material. But, you know, God created man. God was spirit. There was nothing but spirit before the Big Bang. But God had in his mind, I'm going to create matter, molecules, neutrons, protons, electrons. And, I mean, he's wild about it. There are over 200 billion galaxies that we know about. And over, there are trillions of planets and stars. Trillions. I mean, how can, how can you even think that big? I love the story of Teddy Roosevelt, good Presbyterian. When he was president, he used to invite people over to the White House, spend the night, and uh, his favorite thing is to go outside in the dark. And back then, you didn't have all that light pollution, and he had some lounge-type chairs. And he'd point out all the different, you know, astronomical configurations up there, and then he would tell the person about how many planets and stars there were, and then his famous line at the end, he'd say. Now that we're small enough, let's go to bed. And I, I love that story, because if you really think about it, um, there's a great classic book. If you've never read it, you've got to get it. It's an easy read by an Anglican theologian named J.B. Phillips. It's entitled, Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. Most of us have a concept of a too small God. You know, we, we think of him as like a, a grandfather sitting on a throne up there uh, Jesus is the boy next door. Um, that's why current science, especially with this uh, Webb telescope, is telling us how big, how vast this God really is. Uh, get that book and read it. It's, it's, it's really, really good. Um, and now we're back into the transcendence of God. I mean, 
He is so, he's more vast than the universe. And yet you have this, in scripture, you have this balance of transcendence and imminence. It tells us that there's, you know, science says there's trillions of stars. And the Bible says, and God has named every one of them. Have you ever seen that thing? It comes on TV around Christmas time. You know, name a star and give it to your friend, you know, uh, for 60 bucks or something. They get a certificate, you know, that star and such galaxy has your name on it. No, it doesn't. It's, it's already been named. There's no stars with vacancies for names. God is named not. How do you keep track? I have one grandson. I can't sometimes remember his name. How do you keep, how do you keep track of trillions of stars? Oh, there's Fred. Um, but God can. That's how big he is. And yet this same God, who names all the stars, knows how many hairs are on your head. For some people, it's easier than others. But, um, I mean, that's so trivial. But that's the Bible's way of driving home to us that there's nothing in your life and mine that's trivial to God. I remember Dr. Leith saying one time, he threw out a question in class and said, is it proper to pray for a parking space? And this is back when the charismatic movement was sweeping through, you know, people were praying all kinds of stuff, trying to get a, get a, get a, a, a leash on God to make him do what they wanted to do. And, of course, all the guys in my class from Davidson, no, that's not right. And I'll never forget what Dr. Leesy said, said. He said, you know, if your son is in the back seat dying in your car, yeah, you better pray for a parking place. It was his way of saying that there are times when, yeah, when you're so desperate, you can pray for just about anything. Um, and that God takes your prayer seriously. He's not going to go, oh, I can't believe Ron. Now, if you're just lazy and you don't want to have to walk an extra 20 yards, I don't know that God's really into doing that. But who knows? God is sovereign. He can do what he wants. Um, Let's, let's get this makership of God in perspective. Um, three weeks ago, NASA um, uh, aborted the uh, Artemis One. That's a spacecraft that was going to make a flight around the moon. Uh, it was going to be unmanned. But here's some details about that flight. The, the travel distance up to the moon, around and back, was estimated to be about 1.3 million miles. Now, the distance from the Earth to the moon is 238,900 miles. Chuck, if you want to come up here and do this part of the... Chuck was part of the NASA team in Houston that put the first man on the moon. Uh, now, the distance from the sun to Neptune, which is the farthest out planet in our solar system is 2.78 billion miles. That's 11,638 times the distance from Earth to the moon. Now you're getting, starting to get an idea just how big, we're only in our galaxy, uh, how big space is out there. Um, and the distance from our sun to the next star, which is Alpha Centauri, is about 25 trillion miles. Now there's 
estimated to be as many as 200 billion galaxies in the known universe. I mean, we're only talking about our little Milky Way here. So you get an idea of the vastness of space. Well, God's always going to be more vast and big than that. So this is part of that transcendence. And yet he knows the number of hairs on your head. And he's named every one of these trillions of stars. What are some implications of this part of the creed uh, for you and me? Um, Father, how wide and deep is God's love for you? This ought to give you some indication. You know, the, the prodigal son story is a great story of God's love. The father's not the son's, well, I'll be your slave. No, just welcome home, son. That, I believe Jesus was trying to show us just how much, even in our sin, God still loves us. Almighty, how great is God's ability to save you and me? If you're ever worried about your salvation, by the way, if you're worried about your salvation, that's a sign you're saved. Are you one of the elect? If you're not, you don't care. People that aren't elect, the people say, oh, when I die, you know, pack some marshmallows and uh, put me in an asbestos suit. Ha, ha, ha. If you're worried at all about where you're going to send, spend eternity, that's the Holy Spirit prompting faith in, in your life. Um, but can God really save you and me? Could God save Adolf Hitler? If he's sovereign and almighty. Yeah, some of you may not have been here. I told, I, I said one of the questions I like to throw out to drive home the point is, you know, where is Adolf Hitler right now? Of course, most people say he's in hell. How do you know? What if God chose Adolf Hitler before the foundation of the world? Chosen to be him? Why, he would never do that. Because Hitler exterminated six, wait a minute, unconditional election. Unconditional means no parameters on it. He chooses you despite, chooses me, despite who I am. Yeah, but Hitler committed suicide in a bunker. We, we know he never accepted Christ. Would it be impossible if God is sovereign almighty that as Hitler's pulling the trigger, the Holy Spirit regenerated Hitler's heart? And brought him to saving faith in Christ. Sounds repulsive, I know. But until you can until you can embrace that, you don't have any more chance of going to heaven than Adolf Hitler. Don't fool yourself. One sin prevents you and me from ever going into eternity. We don't have to set up concentration camps. We just need to, you know, fill in the blank. That's how big and magnanimous God's love is. Well, I don't want to spend eternity with Hitler. Well, he probably didn't want to spend eternity with you either. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer. Ah, the cannibal. You know, he accepted Christ in prison. I read an article by a chaplain. He said he was the real deal. I mean, genetic school. I mean, folks, there's only one boat of sin, and we're all in it. We, you don't have white-collar boat over here, Hitler boat over here. Jeffrey Dahmer, but no, no, we're all in the same boat. Grace means that you and I don't get what we deserve, and we do get what we don't deserve, based on what Jesus did on the cross, not anything in, that you bring to the, the thing. Um, 
How are you and I to relate to these things God makes? I'm running out of time, so let me just quickly say, here's what I think of that. You know, you and I are to respect, admire, be awed by all the inanimate and animate parts of God's creation. Do you have a, a love and a respect for rocks and dirt and air and water, minerals? I used to say from the pulpit of Highland Park Press, I used to be a roughneck for Texaco offshore. I know all about how they had signs on the rig saying, do not throw anything overboard. And we were throwing drilling mud sacks, old drilling mud overboard. We were polluting like crazy. And, I, and we have a lot of oil people at Highland Park Press. So I'd say, you know, how are you guys treating the Gulf and other areas on land? As a Christian, that ought to influence how you drill for oil. Uh, the, how we treat the inanimate parts of creation, but what about all the flora? Francis Schaeffer is one of my favorite theologians, Presbyterian, dead now. He's got this great phrase about stepping over the buttercups. You know, we should have such a love for plants, and you know, instead of just <clears throat> stepping on blue bonnets or buttercups, you know, step over the buttercup. I think that's the way we ought to react to the, the fauna as well. Um, what animals does, do you have in your purview? How do you take care of them? How do you respect them? Especially human beings. Again, until you and I see every human being as made in the image of God, we will never treat people right. You can't do that and be racist. You can't do that and be for abortion. You can't take that seriously and look down on anyone. Uh, and that's the basis for our federal republic. You know, we're not a democracy. I'm not trying to get political here, but not a democracy. That's just, that means uh, who's ever got the majority rules. Our government's set up to protect the minority and make sure everybody's rights are not trampled on. But that didn't come about just because they thought, well, that sounds like a neat thing to do. It's because most of the founding fathers James Madison is probably the real architect of this. They were Christians, and they took sin seriously. And they said, you know, a king is fine if the king's benign, he's committed to Christ. Uh, but absolute power, power corrupts, and absolute power absolutely corrupts. And so it, they designed our form of government on a biblical basis that takes sin seriously, and nobody can seize power and or can they? Um, please vote next election. I'm not going to tell you how, but just get out there and vote. Okay. Um, I've said enough. Oh, one more thing. Socialism never works. You can study through history. It sounds good. Oh, everybody gets the same salary and everybody... I've, we had a sister church in Cuba from Highland Park Press. So I went down there and I got to preach at their 100th anniversary. And uh, right in the middle of the island of Cuba, Sego de Avila. And so we flew into Havana and then we took a seven hour bus ride to this town. Actually it's about a 100,000 populous city. And um, Cuba works if your goal is nobody's hungry, everybody has food. 
That's great if you only want meat once a month. But you can pretty much have all the rice and beans. Nobody in Cuba is homeless, which is great. If you don't mind living in what literally are shacks with the rain comes through the roof. Everybody is employed. A janitor makes about $15 a month in Cuba. A brain surgeon makes about 18. So what's the incentive? They're going to have this 100th anniversary service at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday. I said to the pastor, I'll preach to two or three, but is anybody going to show up in the middle of the day? So, oh, it'll be packed. There'll be people out in the streets. We'll have loudspeakers because not everybody will fit in the church. I said, really? So, I mean, they're going to just leave their job? Yeah. Won't they get fired? No, can't get fired in Cuba. And so if, if that's what you want, great. And I had the Communist Party of the town sitting in the front pew, and I said, don't say anything about Castro. I said, that's socialism. And I talked to a guy in the church, who's a young medical doctor. And I said, how much do you make a month? He said, I make $16 a month, because I'm a GP. Because to be a specialist, you have to do all the rounds, and I refuse to do the, the abortion round. So if you're a Christian physician, you, they put you in the low point of things. It don't work, folks. It creates a proletariat and an elite that live. I grew up in the D.C. area. I used to wonder during the Cold War, how can these Russian diplomats live in D.C. and see all the stuff going on and they don't go, hey, our thing's not working. I was too naive to realize, you know, for them, life was a five-star world and they had everything. And uh, let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are sovereign. Because of that, um, nothing, nothing can snatch us from your hand. Help us to believe that. Help us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors, meaning everybody else that's created in your image, uh, as you would have us love them, even as we love ourselves. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.